Good to have you along for the ride. John Scholes here. Joining me from San Firu to Markin LLP, our employment lawyer for the hour, Stan Feintelberg. He's going to be the one answering all of your questions. We are going to catch up on a ton of email on the uh, on the show this morning. But in between all that, uh, don't fear you have questions uh, about your workplace, your workplace rights, your employment status, maybe some problems at work. Maybe you think uh, your spidey sense is telling you that the uh, the hammer might drop. And there might be some layoffs or people letting go. Who knows? It could be anything under that uh, under that particular topic. But bring it on. We're ready here for the next hour to uh, to answer those. We'll get into our emails shortly here. But uh, you want to reach out after the show any other time to Stan and his team. You can do so. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's the email, by the way, we're using this morning and every Saturday. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. The phone number for Stan on the office, one 821 5900 and the website that was put together just to make you that much smarter, educate you even before you decide to pick up a phone or want to do your own uh, research, go to pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. You'll learn a lot there. You'll have access to the severance calculator, which does what it's told. It accurately counts the amount of severance you should be getting. You probably won't because you're going to get shortchanged massively, but that'll set you straight at pocketemploymentlawyer.ca. Check out the severance calculator. And uh, literally millions, I mean millions, not hyperbole there, of Canadians have used it and checked it out, so you can use that anytime. But 416-870-6400 to get on air with us this morning, be that third voice. Uh, always start off with the uh, case of the day, thought of the day. Stan, what's going on, brother? Yeah, absolutely. Good morning, John. Uh, so I wanted to start off by talking about uh, a case that I recently saw dealing with one of the most fundamental aspects of employment law, which is the duty to mitigate. And it's a duty that I find that a lot of employers, frankly, get wrong uh, and don't really understand how it properly works. And this case specifically shows exactly how an employer get, can get it so wrong uh, that they can't rely on a person's failure to, t- to actually turn down a job. Uh, in this particular case, John. So we had an employee who worked at a warehouse for a company for since about 20, uh, 2006, was there for about 13 years, kind of a low level warehouse team lead job. So not, not a job that we would say is particularly difficult to replace. Um, and this company that the employer was working for ultimately made the decision that they're going to outsource the entire department. And they were basically outsourcing it to a third party which they then came to the employee and said, well, this third party is going to hire you on the exact same terms that you're working with us. Uh, and so he went and spoke to this third party about the, the job. And, you know, there were a couple of small discrepancies in terms of compensation. Uh, they were going to make him co-pay for benefits and he wasn't going to get the same amount of sick days as before. But, you know, very marginal stuff. And, and the company actually acknowledged these discrepancies and said, you know what, we'll give you a greater base salary to make up for some of those issues. Uh, and the employee, you know, after discussing this with the third party of the company, he ultimately wasn't comfortable going over to the third party. He didn't feel that it had the same brand, same atmosphere, same work environment, wow. and told the company and the third party he was going to reject the job offer. Uh, this was, again, despite the fact that basically it was the exact same job he had been doing, basically the exact same terms of compensation. So he rejects the job offer and, you know, roughly about three or four weeks later, he gets a formal termination letter from the company, one that he knew was coming months before. (laughs) They just never actually triggered the termination. And so the company ultimately terminated him. The third party had already found a replacement. So that job that he had earlier been seeking or suggested to look at was not even available. 
Uh, and the company ultimately took the position in, at trial that the employee's failure to take that job, that, you know, again, a very comparable job in terms of duties, in terms of compensation, that was a failure to mitigate, that the employee was required by law to take that job and not doing so means that they should not be entitled to any more money beyond the statutory minimums. And I, the court ultimately found that that wasn't the case, again, despite the fact that these are just pretty much comparable exact jobs. And it wasn't the case for one very simple reason, job, uh, John. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a failure to mitigate because the duty to mitigate isn't triggered what's at all until you actually terminate it in person. Because when you think about what the duty to mitigate actually means, it's the obligation to go and find work to replace the one you've lost. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't lost your job by being terminated yet, you can't. there's no requirement to take any job before that happens. And even in this case, John, even where this employee knew they were going to lose their job, and even in this case where they everyone knew what was going to happen in the future and it was going to be outsourced, that wasn't enough because the formal termination itself didn't happen until after the employee re rejected the outsourcing job. Uh, so a, a really important lesson here for employers, uh, which is that you know you may have to make sure you get these things right. It's not enough to offer somebody a job if you're if they're losing theirs. You have to make sure that offer comes after you've terminated that employee, because that's only only at which point that duty and that obligation to take a job actually is triggered. So what happens as far as the, the other side with compensation and everything else? Is there, a, is there a rule there as well? In terms of comparability? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's no hard and fast rules. Right. Just like anything in employment law, it's very contextual. You look at the facts of the situation. Frankly, you look at the empathies of the situation and, you know, the empathies are always going to be partially in favor of the employee because you you have a giant company on one side right. and a poor, you know, employee warehouse worker in this case on the other. So there's no, again, hard and fast rule as to how comparable a job or a compensation package has to be. So, you know, I think of it in terms of how we think of constructive dismissals. And we often tell employees that, you know, if you're, if the compensation that, in, in terms of reduction is more than 10% uh, from your previous income, that's usually the the uh, the triggering point for constructive dismissal. And I would look at it the same way here. If they're going to, you know, again, change the margins of your compensation, like make you make uh, a copay or something like that, that's probably not going to be enough to say, well, that job's not comparable. Uh, but, to, but another example, actually, from the case law, which would find that it is not comparable, is the situation where maybe the compensation is the exact same, but the company throws a termination clause in the contract saying, well, if you want to come for work for us, we know you've got 20 years with this company and you might be entitled to 18 to 24 months of common law, but we don't want to give you that. Well, you know, we want to limit our liability. So we want you to sign this termination clause. And there's actually a court, Ontario Court of Appeal case that said that that provision alone made it reasonable for an employee to reject the offer. Well, you got to figure if you got someone who's been there for you know three or four years, uh, maybe if you know the, if the job is good, there's other benefits to it. They'll say, you know what, well, I'll, I'll eat it up and sign. But yeah, if you're talking someone with 25, 30 years experience and this this employer with this contract does not want to recognize previous service, I mean, even if they say they love you and going to keep you forever, 
things happen. And if you end up signing that and six months yeah. or a year later, man, you get sacked. You have just lost out on tens of thousands of dollars, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, one just one clarification. I mean, they do have to recognize the service, at least for the statutory perspective. Right. There's a clear provision in the ESA that says, hey, if you are the buyer or seller or successor employer, and successor is to, defined in very broad terms, uh, you know, even a, uh, a, a situation like this where you're outsourcing someone's employment, that could very easily fall under the successor or sale of business provision. And you essentially force the outsourcing company to recognize the previous service. But what it allows the the third party to do as well is to come in and say, well, you're a new employee to us because there's a sale of business. Whenever there's a sale of business, technically your job ends with one employer and you're starting a new employment with the other one. And there's mechanisms that carry your service over. But technically, you know, because it's a new employment relationship, it does give the new employer, the third party, the ability to step in and say, well, we want a contract. And it also gives them the, the right to actually insert a termination provision that says, yes, we will recognize your, your years of service for the statute's purposes, but we're not recognizing it for any other purpose. So in, in an example where a person has 20 years, let's say, and statutorily, they might be owed 28 weeks. Well, you got to pay them at least that. But anything above that, you can say, no, you know, we're, we're agreeing that if you're going to take this job, we don't owe you anything above the 28 weeks. Uh, and that's that in and of itself was enough reason, at least in one case, to say, well, that's not comparable and I'm not taking that job. Yeah. We got a, a couple minutes before our first break. Let's try to slide in one email before that time. Liz says, hey, guys, my partner's insurance company denied her stress leave application despite a written note from the doctor declaring she was unfit to work. Her company now wants her to return, but she's very stressed out and her doctor is against it. What can she do? So, you know, this is where you know, the interplay between disability law right. and employment law really come in into focus because you really have two different Two different legal actions essentially going on here, and you know, two different, two different uh, defendants, let's call them, uh, as well. Because on the one hand, you have an insurance case in which the insurance company is saying you don't qualify for your benefits, and in the, it sounds like the the doctor saying this person can't work and needs benefits. That essentially comes down to what is the terms of the insurance plan, and what are the disability uh, terms plan terms uh, and was the doctor's medical evidence and is there a reason that the insurance company is saying that the person can work and you know even if the insurance company is saying that john that may not be accurate insurance companies often reject claims as frankly you know a legal strategy making you sue and ultimately unfortunately taking a settlement because that's usually compromising and rather than fighting for years in trial right. is generally the more reasonable thing to do for the employee. On the other hand, you've got an employment situation where, you know, a doctor is saying they can't work, an employer is saying, well, we want you to come back to work. Well, on what evidence or medical evidence are they relying on to make that assertion? All they're pointing at is saying, well, the insurance company says you can work, so we, we're saying you can too. The doctor is the only person in this situation who's actually qualified and has mm -hmm. actually examined the employee. And if that per doctor with their medical license is saying this person cannot work, it's very, very difficult to prove otherwise unless you have another doctor coming in and saying something in the opposite.
So that's not a reason for an employer to just the insurance company saying this person can work is not a reason for the employer to force that person back. If the doctor is saying that that person can't work, your partner can listen to their doctor. They don't have to go back into the workplace. And with that, we are taking a quick break and right back into it. Phone lines are open, so uh, join us with your questions. There's no dumb questions. We like to hear about it all. Employment Law Show continues. Hang in there. And we are back at it. Plenty of time for you to catch us and join us here on air. Stan Fainzelberg is your lawyer this morning, and he's got the answers. Get you started down the right road anyway. The email address is kind of what we're concentrating on uh, this morning on the show. That is help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's the uh, email address for all time, not only just on air, but you want to reach Stan and his folks and his people, his team, outside the hour of the show. That is what you use, help at employmentlawyer.ca. Okay, moving down the email list, pal, that you sent me. Got uh, Jane right here. It says, Jane, guys, how Husband's been on LTD. Oh, an LTD question. Uh, on LTD for almost two years, he's got brain cancer. His company will be terminating his extended health care benefits once he has been on LTD for two years. Uh, is this legal? I feel like we're doing the disability law show today, yeah, John. Exactly. That's after. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Jane, the question really comes down to whether or not they're treating your husband differently in some way than they would any other person in the situation. So, to give you an example, if the company has a policy, and I have I've seen companies with these types of policies that say that after two years we have a right after two years of uh, of no active service we have a right to cut off your benefits and not and not continue to pay those. Well, in that situation, it would be legal because it's it's not discriminatory. They're not doing something and treating your husband differently in a situation. They have a specific policy that applies uniformly, presumably. Uh, to everyone, and it, it whether you know your a person's on LTD for two years or whether they're on mat leave for two years, for example, that policy would apply, and the benefits would would essentially be cut off. Again, they're not; it's not discriminatory in that instance because they're not treating your husband differently outside the confines of the policy. Now, if they didn't have that policy, and let's say they just gave your husband the benefits for two year uh, years uh, as a gratuity because they wanted to. Well, you know, notwithstanding the, the kindness that they've they've provided, because they technically don't have to continue benefits. You have to start from that proposition. I mean, benefits are ultimately a form of compensation and no one would expect them to continue paying a salary. So in a similar way, you, you shouldn't expect the benefits to continue. But if they do continue, then and then they cut them off several years later, just be, not because of a policy, but because they say, well, we don't want to keep doing this anymore. That could be discrimination because there's no there's no uniform rationale for it. They're not treating everyone the same. They're doing this arbitrarily. And then they would have to tr- essentially try to prove that it wasn't discrimination because they weren't treating, a, treating you differently in some way, which they clearly are, or that there was some undue hardship that keeping you on the policy, on the group benefits uh, would uh, would impose upon the employer, which presumably, you know, considering the cost of benefits would be a very difficult thing to prove. So, you know, like many things, John, it depends on the context, depends on the facts. uh, And there are situations where it could absolutely be discrimination. And there are situations where it very much isn't discrimination. And uh, as as, uh, Stan kind of alluded to uh, when beginning to answer this email, anytime you want to reach out to Stan, if it is, you know, a combination, because there is always tons of interplay between disability and employment, perfect situation right here, Uh, reach out to Stan. He'll flip your your phone call across the hall to the disability folks at the firm because they've got a complete other section, as you know, if you catch our show here. 
on uh, on 640, the disability law show that can handle both. And, and many lawyers, as as you will uh, mention, Stan, uh, do both. So you're uh, you're in good hands if it ends up being an LTD thing, overlapping in uh, employment or vice versa. They've got you. They've got you covered anyway. Uh, Tony's up next is guys having had received a recent severance. Would I be able to apply for EI without any penalties or clawbacks? What do you think, Stan? Yeah. So uh, the way EI works, John, is that you can't collect severance and EI for the same period of time. So let's say Tony got a 20-week severance. Uh, the way the, what would essentially happen is that he would be paid his 20 weeks, or let's say it was a lump sum. He would, the employer would, on the record of employment, put down in one of the, the sections that basically that they paid him a lump sum of 20 weeks of severance. EI would then process that claim and presumably see that and then tell that employee that your entitlement to EI doesn't kick in until week 21. So in that you essentially can't collect both. And there are sometimes situations where, you know, a person gets EI and then we sell their employment case, their severance after the fact. And that does create a, a unfortunate delay because what it requires the employee to do in, that, in the, that situation is to go to EI, tell them they've got the severance money, and then figure out how much money they actually have to pay back to the government. Because again, they were collecting EI for a period in which they're now getting severance and you can't do that. So in those that scenario, essentially, you have to give the money back to EI, get your severance, when that severance runs out, so let's say you know you sell that month ten, uh, at week ten, it's a ten month severance. You you pay ten weeks of EI back. You collect your severance for ten months. You're still unemployed at month eleven. That's when you can start collecting EI. Okay. Whether that's a pe- penalty or a clawback, I mean, it probably falls more under the clawback provision, uh, and it's it's a bit of a difficult process. And I generally, if it can be avoided, it's best to try to avoid it, but Ultimately, that's how EI works. You can't get both at the same time, uh, and uh, there's just no way around that. Does it make a difference, Stan, with the structure of the severance, meaning if you get a lump sum payment all at once or if it's pay continuance over time? As, using your example, if it's 10 months severance, I mean, you know, if, it, mm-hmm. if it's over 10 months that they pay you, does that make any difference to this whole calculation or no? Not, not really, because EI will essentially, like, uh, again, as I mentioned, the employer has to tell them or you have to tell them depending on timing, depending on when the settlement happens, let's say. Uh, and EI will do its internal calculations and they'll tell you you're only eligible for EI uh, at this point. The one the one thing in which it does depend heavily, though, is when you apply for EI. Because if you're getting 10 months of salary continuance, then it's as if you're still on payroll and you're actually accruing insurable hours. Which are different than you know regular hours. It's it's the way that EI calculates you, uh, how many hours you need to qualify before you even can start collecting EI because you need about six hundred insurable hours. Right. So if you get ten months of salary continuance, that continues to count as, as insurable hours, and you can apply for your EI at the ten month mark. If you get a lump sum, you just get the money. So if you were to apply ten months after you receive that lump sum, because you're not accumulating insurable hours you may no longer qualify for EI. So that's the one really important distinction that I always make sure that my clients are aware of. If you're getting the money as a lump sum, you need to apply immediately, even if you don't qualify, so you can make sure that they have that application, you have your insurable hours banked. 
That's a you know kind of a kind of a break off from that uh, from that point before we get to a, another email with your client stand. I mean, I guess they. If I if if I was in that situation, saying Stan, handle my case, I would you know I guess there's tax implications whether you know what part of the year it is, fiscal, blah blah blah. But I I th- I think I would prefer to say just give me the money, show me the money, man. Let me just take a lump sum and run. Is that always the case with most of your clients? Is that generally the advice you give, or is there a reason why they would do pay continuance over time? Because other than a tax implication bleeding into the next year and not getting absolutely hammered for tax if you get a lump sum, you know, December thirty first type of thing, right? Yeah, no, there's, I would say 80%, maybe even 90% of people want the money up front as a lump sum. Uh, There's a lot of reasons for that. There's, you know, a lot of the emotional aspect of I just want to be done with this company and just give me the money so we can go our separate ways. Um, There's also some good reasons where in certain situations, I might advise a client to take the salary continuance. Uh, For example, a lot of benefits and pension plans won't let you stay on as a participant, unless you're an employee, quote unquote, on salary continuance, essentially. Yeah. So if you take the lump sum, well, you lose out on pension potentially. And that pension over a 10, 12, 16, 18 months, that could be 15 grand, 10 grand of contributions from the employer, if not more. So why lose that if the only thing you're really, you know, the only trade off is, uh, well, I'll take this money over a period of time. The biggest concern, and really the the largest factor when kind of evaluating between between the two structures is what is the company's financial situation? Because if the company is in, has a difficult financial situation, if you think they might go into credit protection, bankruptcy, yeah. get that money and get out. Yeah. Because if you've got, if you're on salary continuance, you know, you can have 24 months. That's great. Company goes bankrupt at month five. You're not getting you're anything else. Exactly. Exactly. So, that's the biggest really consideration. And then from there, you know, there's other reasons why certain people may want salary continuance, but predominantly most people want the lump sum. All right, let's get to Jacob quickly. Here's his guys. I was on a disability leave when my company restructured our department, let go 20 people, including me. Are they allowed to terminate me if I'm on disability leave? Ooh, that's not a good one. I feel like we should call uh, call Savannah for some of these questions. <laughs> yeah, Savannah, you're doing termination in the next show. Yeah. Okay, sorry, Phil. Uh, so again, like so many things in employment law, context is so important, and it depends. You know, if a person is being let go because their entire department has been eliminated and outsourced, well, and there really is no other job to comparably move that person into, well. That's not discrimination because they're not treating you any differently. They've made a business decision to let go everybody in the department. Uh, and you just happen to be a person on disability leave within the department. Now, if you're on disability leave and they only terminate you, well, that, you know, and nothing else really is happening at the company, that's a pretty sh- shady situation. I mean, it, a lot of companies are not so ignorant these days to specifically say hey we're terminating you because you're disabled or hey you know you've been on leave too long and we're going to go find someone else because we don't want to keep waiting uh but you know there's certainly circumstantial evidence that you can build on like hey why am i the only one who's being let go and what's the rationale for it that leads to the obvious conclusion that you're being terminated at least in by some tiny fraction of the rationale because you're on a disability leave. So like so many things, John, it depends. Yeah. Uh, 
and there it can be discrimination it could be not discriminatory you know, i actually have an interesting situation that recently came in, in my practice kind of very similar to jacob's question where a person who was on a uh mat leave in this case was told about six months before her return that they're changing her job so that she now needs a official cpa designation to continue doing it and this was a person who'd been doing this job without a cpa designation for 15 16 years so the obvious question there is well why does she need a cpa designation now no. she's been doing it forever and you know in, in this in sussing out the facts with her and discussing the, the circumstances it kind of became clear what the real reason was they hired a new person and they sounds like they like that person and want to keep her in the role well you know we i can understand that from a business perspective but the reality is that you can't make that decision in the circumstances of a person on a disability leave or on a, or on a maternity leave because you're treating them differently i mean you're basically creating a situation where you know they can't come back to the job uh, because you've changed the the credentials for it for no other reason than you want somebody else. And because, again, they're on a disability leave or on mat leave. Had they never taken that leave, these circumstances would have never arisen. Uh, that, to me, is a very clear way of proving through circumstantial evidence how that person's being discriminated against. And with that, we got to get into a break. More of your emails on the way. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. We will continue with the Employment Law Show. Hang in there. Back at it, John Scholes and employment lawyer Stan Fainzelberg is here from Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. Reach out to Stan anytime you would like and to have your own conversation. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. That's the number to reach Stan and his crew. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. That's the email address we use all the time, both on the show and off. You can use that. Uh, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca, the website. Okay, Blaine is up next. Guys, I'm in sales and I just got terminated after closing the largest account of my career. Now, big shock, the company is trying to tell me I'm not entitled to the commission payment, which is well over $20,000 because their policy says I have to be actively working on the date the company receives the funds from the client. Uh, Stan, are they allowed to do this, says Blaine. (laughs) Uh, Very, very likely not. Again, it would slightly depend on what the actual language of that policy is, of the commission payments. Because if they were to have language that says, uh, you know, a commission, you're only owed your commission once we receive payment from the uh, the company, yep. and you, we specifically agree that uh, any payments that are received from the company during the notice period, we will not pay you any commissions over that uh, time, unless it falls within the statutory notice period. Uh, that type of language would actually be enough to disentail someone from commissions. Uh, that, however, if the language is as simple as kind of in this email where it says, well, you have to be actively working on the date the company receives the funds. Well, just like a lot of the bonus cases that we've seen where that language has been you know, evaluated and found wanting multiple times, it's not going to be enough to disentitle someone from their owed commissions. Uh, the main, what people have to remember, is, and the courts have said multiple times, is that a person during their notice period is still an employee of the company. Uh, and the act, you know, the actively working part is what co- companies always try to rely on to say, well, they're not actively working. Well, the only reason they're not actively working is because you're not letting them work out the notice period. You've said yeah. that you'd rather pay them money rather than give them that opportunity. And that's how the courts have framed it because you've taken away the opportunity 
you can't just say, well, they're not actively working, so we you don't get it. It has to be language beyond that, similar to the language I mentioned earlier. And just, just having that type of language in a bonus policy, restricted stock units policy, commissions policy, that's not going to be enough from disentitling that employee from the commissions as long as that that payment is scheduled to happen within their common law notice period. Well answered, Blaine. You know, if you have any other questions, you can always uh, can always reach out to Stan. Hey, Al, thanks for taking the time this morning. How are you? Good, good. <laughs> good, brother. Um, very interesting. Thanks for taking my call. Thank okay. you. So here's the thing. We, um, the company I work for, uh, it's an engineering company, and the uh, owner of the company passes is passed away a few weeks ago. And uh, it's a very old, established company. Now, there's two offers, uh, from what I understand, to buy the company. No one's going to buy the shares. Uh, they just buy the goodwill for liability reasons. They just buy the goodwill mm-hmm. and the records and all the rest of it. There's 11 employees. Some of us have been employed for almost 30 years, myself, nine years. And now um, we're really wondering about severance. Uh, one offer supposedly ha- is going to take the employees, and the other one is just, just wants the uh, would, would probably hire us, but would only you know buy the the uh, you know the notes and records and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to know, like, uh, is the parent company that we're currently still working for? Are they liable for the severances for the employees? Great question. Yeah, and it's one that we touched on earlier, and uh, it's it's a nuanced question. There's a couple of things that we'd have to kind of suss out as well to figure out the answer. Because you know, as you mentioned, the company one one option is that they're going to hire all the employees on. If they're going right. to hire you all on, and assuming the company gives you enough notice, like so. W- Whenever you have what's called an asset purchase, which is what you're talking about, there is always a termination that occurs because you're going from one corporation to another corporation, potentially. So because there's a termination that occurs, they have to give you your statutory requirements, whether you take a job with the new employer or not. So, you know, you mentioned it's a small company that I'm assuming that means their payroll is under 2.5 million. And basically the maximum they would owe anybody under the statute is eight weeks of notice or eight weeks of termination pay. So let's say eight weeks before they're closing, they come to you and say, hey, your job is ending in eight weeks. That would satisfy what they owe you from a statutory perspective. And then what they owe you thereafter depends on what the the new employer does. If the new employer comes along and says, hey, I'm hiring all of you, same terms, recognizing service, you know, come and work for me. Basically, on Monday, you're going to stop working for for the previous company. On Monday, you're going to start working for us. Same location, same everything. Well, in that situation, you probably are required to take that job because that's a comparable job. They're not introducing any new terms. And unless you can show a really good reason, reason that convinces a court why you should reject it, you're likely going to have to take that job. And even if you didn't, the the seller likely doesn't owe you anything else. But let's say in another scenario that the buyer isn't offering you a new job or they're offering you a job that's completely different or on completely different terms, you know, 30% reduction in pay or something like that. In that situation, you probably don't have to take the new job. And the obligations to pay out your severance remain with the seller and there, essentially, there's no failure to mitigate by not taking the new job. So the seller would owe you your, whatever your common law damages are from there. Mm-hmm. 
so the common law is obviously engaging or um, you know hiring uh, like you guys and then they would uh, you know deal with the parent company's solicitors that's really the way that works i guess right Generally speaking, you know, you'd want to at least speak to a lawyer to see what your rights are, what, you know, what the company is offering. Again, every case is contextual. Facts are always uh, the most important element. So it could be that the company gives you a good package. And we, you know, I talk to many people where I tell them, listen, this is a good package. You should feel good that your company is doing right by you. And there's no need to pay a lawyer to do anything else. Most of the time when you're dealing with sales of businesses, companies get it wrong, I would say. And it's definitely important to speak to a lawyer to make sure that they are offering you what's fair. Al, really appreciate the call, pal. We're up against the clock to carry on that conversation, which we encourage you to do, of course, with Stan afterwards uh, during next week. Is uh, no problem. One eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred. Help at employmentlawyer.ca. And we continue uh, after the break with more of the Employment Law Show. Hang in there. Getting through our emails this morning, pal. Here we go. Uh, Whitney's up next. Guys, it was terminated, and I believe it's because my manager hates me and forced the company to get rid of me. Can she do that? Uh, So very difficult question to answer because in a lot of ways, you know, having an interpersonal issue with your manager, there's nothing illegal about that. I mean, the law and the courts don't require people to get along at work. They just require you to get along well enough to work together. Yeah. Uh, And if you have interpersonal issues with your manager, I mean, I think you just have to recognize that there is an inherent power imbalance in that situation. And even if your manager is wrong for your own self-interest, you may be better off kind of just accepting whatever the criticism are and trying your best to try to win your manager over. Because in a situation like this that I see oftentimes and hear about so often, you know, an employee comes to me and says, oh, my, my manager is a very difficult person and I can't work with them. They hate me and they got me fired. Well, you know, that's very extremely unfortunate. But unless it crosses over into the line of harassment or there's something more malicious going on there beyond just oh, they don't like my personality and, you know, we don't get along, that's never going to be a, re- you know, it's never going to reverse the termination. It's not going to attract any other forms of damages like punitive damages or anything like that. Again, you don't have to get along with the people you work with, but you do have to work with them. Yeah. I mean, we, we used to say on the show that, you know, you'll walk into work one day and your boss says you're wearing red shirts. I hate red shirts. You're gone. Asinine, stupid, probably never happened. But from a legal standpoint, if you're paid proper severance at that point, your boss can do that. Right. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, what I hear a lot from clients in response to that is, well, isn't that discrimination? You know, you're treating me differently because I've got red shoes or a blue car or whatever. Uh, And that clearly is discrimination. But there is a legal distinction between discrimination and the forms of discrimination that we protect. Okay. We don't protect people uh, if they're being discriminated against because they wear different colored shoes. These we do protect people who are being discriminated against because of their age, disability, ethnicity, sexual orientation, religious beliefs. There's a few other grounds. Essentially, all of them are clearly outlined in the Human Rights Code. And unless you fall within those grounds, then the discrimination that you're experiencing, which you know by any definition constitutes discrimination, isn't going to be the type of legal discrimination that the courts and the laws protect. 
Yeah, big difference between being discriminated against and being offended. How about that? That's uh, that's where we'll leave that one for now. But uh, Reed is uh, Reed's coming up next. His guys who work in security and have been working at the same condo for over 20 years. During that time, there have been three property management companies whom I've worked for, uh, with the last one coming in about two years ago. They're now terminating me and treating me as if I only had been employed there for two years. Do they have to consider my years of service with the other companies? Uh-huh. I would absolutely say yes, John. Uh, you know, we talked about the sales of business provisions. They're extremely broad. And you have to remember that the reason they're so broad is the, and the reason, frankly, the main purpose of the Employment Standards Act is it's there to protect employees. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're not going to be able to write laws that can deal with every imaginable situation. And that's why we write them very vaguely and in a very broad way so that when it comes before a court, you know, we we trust our courts and our judges to make the right decisions and interpret laws in ways that they're intended to be interpreted. In, in this case, again, from an employee-centric perspective. So looking at this situation, I mean, you have a person who's worked for one company for 20 years through some various corporate schemes amongst them. Uh, that person's presumably come to the same place of work every day, worked with the same people, gotten the same compensation, same hours, had taken direction from the same managers. Objectively, looking at that, you know, through any objective prism, you're going to say that that's an employment relationship. And the fact that there's some corporate, you know, some corporate scheme between these employment agencies and company to call it something else, the courts don't care about corporate schemes, just like we do, you know, when we see a contract that calls somebody an independent contractor, we don't, I mean, we give it some weight, but that's not the end of the the analysis. We're going to actually look at what was the relationship. And just like in that situation here, you're going to look at well, what was the true nature of this relationship. And if it looks like an employment relationship, then that's what the courts are going to call it and hold, you know, in this case, I would say the, the first, second employment agency, as well as the company in which you actually worked to be your employer and owe you severance for the full period of time. Yeah, that whole, uh, it, it's interesting when you, we talk about getting emails about matters dealing with condos and security and, and, um, and landlords as well. That, that, that's one that often comes up where, you know, the landlord in most cases in condominiums, as you know, usually gets a unit on the ground floor they live in because they got to be on site to take care of various things about the building. And, you know, when they're yep. let go, quite often the, you know, the company who employed them forgets to include that as part of their compensation. So if they're owed, uh, you know, 12 months severance, they either get to stay in that unit for 12 months or they get whatever the rent would be to replace that unit for 12 months. I, I know we've often had that one on air as well, right? And I think that that still holds true, no? Yeah, absolutely, John. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, yeah, so there's an unfortunate aspect to that because, as well because the ESA actually gives an employer the ability to to kick a person out of their unit pretty quickly. Actually, uh, uh, I think it's something like seven days. Uh, but as you also noted, giving that person that unit that's compensation. You know, well, similar to how if someone gave you a, a car allowance, it's compensation, or a home allowance to pay for internet, it's compensation. At the end of the day, a dollar is always worth a dollar, whether you yeah. call it a bonus, whether you call it salary, whether you call it car allowance, whether you call it a uh, a per diem for or in the form of a rental unit. And if you're taking away that compensation, you have to replace it because at the end of the day, you're, that employee is entitled to be made whole throughout yeah. the notice period. So absolutely, John, you know, while they can unfortunately kick them out fairly quickly, 
then they have to give them the market equivalent of whatever that rental unit would be going for. And with that, we are up against the clock. We're out of time. Thanks for your emails and your phone call. Appreciate that. You can carry on the conversation. In fact, uh, Stan, always encourage you to call before you make any move in that workplace dealing with what could be your former employer. And uh, the phone number, one 821 5900 help at employmentlawyer.ca. And don't forget that website, pocketemploymentlawyer.ca as well. We'll catch you next time right here on the Employment Law Show.